KPK has available a few good hours of airtime for a few good programs to serve their communities. Radio is better than ever in targeting an audience that listens to what you say. Learn more about this exciting radio broadcasting opportunity by calling WNZK Radio at 248-557-3500. This is WNZK, Dearborn Heights, Detroit. Your ethnic superstation at 690 days, 680 nights. The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English-language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. Special Correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And it's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022, and I'm your host, Ray Hanania. We're broadcasting live in Detroit, Washington, D.C., and uh, rebroadcasting tomorrow, Thursday, in Chicago at 12 noon on uh, WNWI AM 1080 Radio. We're also rebroadcasting the show tomorrow morning in Detroit. You know, in case you go to sleep early, you know, during the week and uh, you get up really early, you want to uh, listen, you can listen to us at 7 o'clock on WNZK AM 690 Radio on the U.S. Arab Radio Network, uh, brought to you by Layla Al Husseini. This show is sponsored by um, the U.S. Arab Radio uh, Network and uh, sponsored by Arab News. Today, we're going to focus on President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia with two guests. The first is Elise Labatt, who is a leading journalist covering um, U.S. foreign policy and international issues. She is a columnist at Political Magazine and adjunct professor at American University School of International Service. She covered, uh, 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 she was a uh, global affairs correspondent for CNN for two decades and reported from over 80 countries um, and she is currently the founder and CEO of Zevi Media, a digital platform that engages the Gen Z audience. Then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to Fahad Nazar, the spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in the U.S. Prior to his appointment, Nazar served as a political consultant to the Saudi Embassy in Washington, D.C. He holds a master's degree in political science from St. John's University in New York and bachelor's degree in political science from New York University. He's worked as an advisor to the Saudi Embassy in Washington, D.C., a researcher, international fellow at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, where he provided political, social, and economic expertise on developments in Saudi Arabia and the greater Arab region. Um, and he also has uh, positions within the Arab Gulf States Institute. So we did uh, the interview, I did it this morning with Elise Labatt, and uh, right now I'm going to share that interview with you so that you can uh, enjoy it. And I think I got this thing 
managed really well. So here we go. Let's see. I'm on the line with Elise Labatt, a leading journalist covering U.S. foreign policy and international issues. She is a columnist at Political Magazine and an adjunct professor at American University School of International Service. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard of her. She was CNN's global affairs correspondent for two decades, where she reported from more than 80 countries, traveled the world with seven secretaries of state, and has interviewed many world leaders and newsmakers. Um, she is also the Global Ambassador for Vital Voices, an organization that empowers female entrepreneurs around the world and is on the advisory committee of Global Kids DC, a program that introduces high school students in underserved communities to international affairs. She's also uh, at, uh, let's see here, she's also the CEO and founder of Zivi Media, a digital platform engaging the Gen Z audience on global issues. That's a great resume, okay? Uh, thanks, Ray. Thanks, thank, Ray. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I read, I read your piece at uh, Political Magazine about Saudi Arabia and uh, Biden's visit, and I thought it was very fascinating. I, you know, there's so much you have to navigate around this issue, but you cut right to the chase what I thought. You got to the significant part of it. Summarize what you found in looking at all this. Uh, and interviewing people about this, uh, his upcoming trip to Saudi, President Biden's upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia next month. Well, thanks for having me, Ray. Good to be with you. Uh, I, I've been working on this piece for a long time, even before the um, announcement of the trip, because I thought it was, you know, really interesting how um, President Biden, came, as we, of course, we remember, came to office kind of, um, you know, I think that there was a, a, a big distaste for Saudi Arabia among Democrats, not just because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but also because of the close relationship the Saudis, Mohammed bin Salman in particular, had with President Trump. And so I think that when, you know, President Biden was on the campaign trail as a candidate, he promised, of course, to um, treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah state, make them pay the price, um, and for a while, they were, you know, pretty standoffish. But I think as time wore on, and certainly um, the war in Ukraine was really a catalyst for this, the U.S. saw that the relationship with Saudi Arabia um, was, as we say, too big to fail. And so um, you had rising gas prices, you had the war in Ukraine, you had a whole host of things where the U.S. would look to that you know, solid partner over the years, Saudi Arabia, this is a 75-year-old relationship. Um, and because um, Saudis and the Crown Prince and Mohammed bin Salman in particular were being kind of ostracized, finally they, they had had enough. Now look, you know, even though President Biden was saying this out in public, in private, he was sending emissaries to Saudi Arabia to say, look, we want to reset the relationship, we want to move forward, and kind of, you know, in secret almost, there was this back channel diplomacy going on for the last year or so um, in which the two sides were trying to make progress on a whole host of issues. Um, but the Saudis were getting a little tired of um, being treated, I guess you could say like a mistress almost, like, you know, warm words in private, but in public, you know, the crown prince and the Saudis continued to be ostracized and finally, um, you know, the Saudis, the Saudis kind of said, look, we can move forward together. 
We can do a whole host of things on a, a myriad of global challenges, or we can, you know, this relationship can be, as we say, you know, just very transactional. But um, I think really the recognition of the crown prince and, and moving forward um, between the two leaders is going to be key. And that's what I think President Biden finally came around to when he decided to go to Saudi Arabia. And you mentioned in your piece that one of the emissaries was uh, Brett McGurk. He sent him out there to uh, kind of uh, figure out how to move forward with that. I mean, you and I both know we've covered politics a long time that election politics always gets in the way of final decisions and final policies and right. platforms. Uh, that whole thing with Trump and now with Biden, I think, is he just trying to get up beyond the politics of the campaigns? Uh, because Saudi Arabia has always been pretty close and supportive of the United States. Well, I think that, um, let's be honest, I don't think that President Biden ever really intended to um, treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah when he came to office and make that his policy. But as you said, the politics kind of got in the way and they were trying to move forward on the policy, but in secret because of the politics. And you know, after a while, the Saudis did want to repair the relationship. So they did a lot of what the US asked them to do. But finally, I think they were just like, all right, you know, in or out. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, so I think that's, you know, there have been a series of visits over the um, course of the last year or so. Um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan went out there, the CIA Director Bill Burns went out there. And I think there's a recognition that, you know, there are problems in the relationship. In particular, I think the U.S. is concerned about, um, you know, accountability for Jamal, um, which I don't think they're ever really going to be satisfied with the kind of accountability that the Saudis are offering, but also on the wider human rights um, front. But that, you know, whether it's security or economically or in the region, that the Saudis are a valuable partner and that the U.S. does gonna need to, um, you know, uh, reset the relationship. When you assess the U.S.-Saudi relationship, how, why is it important to fix it? I mean, obviously the president recognizes that there's something bigger that he needs um, and that he thinks is in the U.S. best interest. What's driving that? Why is it important to fix it for him? Well, I mean, a lot of people are, you know, kind of reducing it to the oil. And look, the Saudis are the biggest swing producer. The U.S. does, you know, is kind of looking to them to um, stabilize markets. You know, everyone is, all your listeners are kind of going to fill up their gas, um, their car with gas at the pump. And it's like over $5, some, some places $7. So the initial, you know, thought is, can we get the Saudis to increase oil production so that that will ease the pain at the gas pump? I think that the Saudis ultimately, you know, again, after kind of playing hard to get with the, with the United States have, have agreed to some oil production. I really don't think that's going to make much of a difference for the U.S. economy in the long run. And that's what experts say. But look, I think if it's anything from you know, stabilizing some of the economies in the region like Lebanon, for instance, or playing a mediator in Iraq or reaching out to Iran, normalization with Israel. And then there's, you know, Saudi Arabia is on the Red Sea. And then there's a whole, you know, about keeping trade lanes open in the Red Sea and mediating with Africa. I mean, if you look across the globe, like there are, you know, most major foreign policy um, issues, particularly in that part of the world, 
Um, Saudi Arabia is the gorilla in the room and you can't really get anything done um, if you don't have them on the inside. And so the U.S. kept asking, 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 and Saudi Arabia by and large was, was doing it. But I think there became a point where um, they said, what's in it? What's in it for me? You know, you're not, you're not, they were very upset with the way the relationship was going. And I think that, you know, President Biden's advisors were afraid that, that the U.S. would lose this relationship, for the, at least for the remainder of the term. And the, and the U.S. does really, you know, does really kind of need them. So, um, so Biden is going out there in part because of the conflict in Ukraine. He needs, you know, their support or he needs to kind of recalibrate that. But doesn't it also have to do with Middle East regional peace? Um, the Saudis are so critical to all that, or is that not a big factor in Europe? In no, Europe? I think it, it's. A, I think it's a very big factor. I think that you know certainly the U.S. wants to kind of deepen. You know, U.S. and Saudi have kind of uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia have kind of had some you know quiet contacts over the years. That's increasing. The Saudis have you know with the Abraham Accords, the Saudis have agreed to allow flights from Israel to some of the Gulf states. Um, that's a big accomplishment. Um, they're mediating, the U.S. is mediating over some um, islands in the Red Sea that Egypt has, but, you know, the, the thought is to hand them over to Saudi Arabia and, and Israel is involved in that, obviously, for their security. I think that, you know, again, the Saudis are the big regional partner, not just in the Middle East, but also in Africa. They have a lot of ties with Sudan. They have ties with Ethiopia. The U.S. is you know, looking for them to play that mediator, but it's also as much as it is about regional politics, it's also about kind of the global economy in China. I mean, President Biden came to office saying that he wanted to, strategic competition with China was the big, the cornerstone of his foreign policy. Well, you know, if the Saudi Arabia is not gonna partner with the US, the Chinese are in there. They're, you know, one of the big, I think Saudi Arabia is the biggest, um, supplier of their oil. And they're certainly one of um, Saudi Arabia's biggest consumers of oil. Um, there's a military relationship. And in order to kind of butt that budding relationship, I think also the Saudis would rather have the US as that global partner. And so I think, you know, China is also a big factor. And I know that, uh, of course, we see uh, Israel's government is in turmoil. They're planning another election. Um, it seems like it might give the president an opportunity to kind of, you know, use this in the Middle East to play a bigger role there, do you think? Or do I you think, think that I think that the relationship between Saudi and, and Saudi Arabia and Israel is going to transcend whatever leadership there is. I mean, you saw that Benjamin Netanyahu went over there. Certainly Bennett has been trying to deepen the contacts. I think if Yair Lapid was president, he certainly... Um, you know, increasing the countries in the Abraham Accords um, for Israel to normalize with the Arab states is also um, very high on his agenda. So I don't think um, the whoever is, it, it's actually not a good time really for President Biden to go to Israel if they're in the throes right. of an election season. But, you know, I think he's committed to going anyway. Um, and then well, President Biden is also going to meet with all the regional leaders um, of the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, they call it the GCC plus three, because it'll be um, also Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq. And that's really an opportunity to kind of talk about regional issues. Is, I don't, Israel won't be there, but it'll certainly be on the agenda. Um, and so I think 
in you know, basically incorporating Israel, deep, deepening its integration into the region is um, an important facet of the administration's policy in the region. I know the Saudis had said that uh, uh, they're not going to do anything with Israel until they resolve the Palestinian issue. Um, and I, I agree with you. I don't think he's going to, while the Israelis are in turmoil trying to figure out their elections, but it does send a message out there that, you know, the Saudis are critical. Um, they've made Palestine, you know, a major, you know, hurdle that has to be, you know, overcome to establish uh, normal relations. Um, so that could play an important factor, I think, for him. I think that um, basically Israel is deepening in the region. I think that Saudi Arabia does want, I think the crown prince does want to deepen its relations with Israel. King Salman, his father, who's, you know, technically the, you know, he's the de facto, the crown prince is the de facto ruler, but the ruler of the country is King Salman. And he is very much um, firm about not normalizing with Israel until there is movement on the Palestinian issue. I think it, once, once the king does um, pass away, um, and there's a new leadership. I think those relationship, those contacts will deepen. Um, but certainly, the Saudis, um, you know, the Saudis are very concerned that, you know, a lot of this um, integration of Israel into the region is taking place at the expense of Palestinians. Many um, Arabs feel like that. But then there's also a feeling, and I'm sure you've heard it from, you know, your listeners as well that sometimes the Palestinians, um, you know, are also with their own government and their own political dysfunction are their own worst enemy. And so I think it, you know, look, if this relationship with Saudi Arabia were to, when the US were to improve, if relations with Israel and Saudi Arabia were to improve, it's, it's possible that, you know, and I'm just freelancing here, I don't know yeah. anything, but it's possible that Saudi Arabia plays a, a bigger role in, in helping the Israelis and the Palestinians come to some kind of accommodation. I don't, I, I don't think that you can keep Israel and Saudi Arabia apart from, for much longer because there is a lot of um, opportunity. I think a lot of the Gulf states, the reason that they're doing it is for a couple of reasons. A, intelligence and security issues related to Iran and terrorism in the region and intelligence, but really the economic um, opportunities that trade, tourism, technology, all of that cooperation with Israel affords. I, and the Saudis are looking, you know, um, for their transformation of this economy. The Crown Prince's Vision 2030 is really all about the future. Um, you know, they are, if, if you can get through this Palestinian um, issue, I think Saudi Arabia and, the US, and Israel are natural partners. Yeah, I think if Biden comes back with something uh, better, stronger relationship with the Saudis, it, I think it gives them a stronger base to move forward on the Middle East issues and address that. Tell it, what is it that uh, the U.S. needs to do, you think? And then I'm going to ask the same thing. What does, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia have to do but, uh, to make this work? What, what does the U.S. have to do, in your opinion, first? I know that the uh, U.S. has relationships with a lot of governments that we don't always agree with on some very specific issues. So is the Saudi relationship any different than a lot of other governments that the U.S. has ties with where they may disagree with issues or have issues with uh, events that happen? Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. 
and it's never going to be a democracy. And a lot and of the so, a lot of the countries that we deal with aren't democracies either. You right. Know, you look like in South America, and uh, you know, uh, a Saudi official told me um, this about um, one of the meetings with um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, or no, it was with Brett. Sorry, it was with Brett McGurk. This first meeting, and um, the Crown Prince said, "Look, I." We agree, the Saudis agree with about 80% of US values, morals, policies, whatever, okay? 20%, we don't. You know, we want peace in the region, but we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna poke the bear with Iran or, you know, foreign policy is an internal matter. It's not for you to tell us. Also, um, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, which is a very Bedouin tribal society, um, you know, the, the tribe wins out over the individual. If the individual gets his way, then the tribe can get killed. So, you know, there's a very tribal society and sometimes the individual wins out over individual rights. Uh, the tribe wins out over individual rights. And so he went on about saying like, there's a lot we agree with, but there are some things that we don't agree with and that's it. Like, we're going to have to agree to disagree on those things. The U.S. can't bend a country to its will. Um, and, you know, whether it's in the UAE or Saudi or Bahrain or these Gulf states, they're monarchies. They're not democracies. But if you ask the people, by and large, you know, there are, there's not a lot of dissent and it's not tolerated. But by and large, if you ask the I'd say if you ask the Saudis whether they um, approve of bin, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, if you held an election, I think he'd win hands down. So I think it's recognizing these leaders as imperfect as they are um, and trying to find a way to move forward instead of trying to build, bend them to our will. And then uh, I asked about what the US needs to do. What does the kingdom have to do in your opinion? Well, I think, again, it's just, um, you know, showing that leadership in the region that the U.S. is looking for. Um, and that could be anything from standing on the right side of, you know, um, democracy against the war, you know, against the war in Ukraine, not giving President Putin. I think what, what Congressman Tom Malinowski, and I said this in the piece, said we have one goal right now, and that's to beat Putin. And we need the Saudis to help us do that. And so that means not you know, doing anything with the oil markets that will embolden President Putin or not giving him a diplomatic, um, you know, entree or, you know, maybe not supporting sanctions in the U.S. in the way the U.S. wants them to, but don't do anything that's going to help President Putin. And I think if the Saudis want to be that leader, um, that's what the U.S. is looking for them to do. Elise Labat is uh, Labatt. Elise Labatt is uh, our guest. And before I let you go, uh, tell us a little bit about, you're the CEO and founder of Zevi Media. It's a digital platform engaging the Gen Z audiences on a global scale. That's how you describe it. Uh, what is that? What, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was with CNN for many years and I left at the end of 2018. And then, you know, obviously COVID happened and, you know, everyone's talking about how to get out of this you know, horrible pandemic that we're in and, and how do we kind of aid in COVID recovery? And I thought, um, you know, the way to aid in COVID recovery is to have a discussion about the world we want to live in, you know, post COVID. And I think young people really have to be at the center of that because they're the, they're our leaders and they're, 
they're the future. And so, and I think they're not part of the media conversation about issues shaping their future. And so this is really a way, you know, I think young people um, want unbiased news and information, but are frustrated with the, you know, partisan nature of media today. And they also want a, a place where they can engage, not just with one another, but with leaders and thought leaders and business leaders. And so this is really, I like to say it's at the intersection of civic engagement and media and it's global because you know a lot of your listeners are, are from the Middle East or, or Arab American. Um, you know, there's so much dynamic youth in the Middle East. There's so much dynamic youth in Africa, Latin America, Europe, around the world. And if young people had a place where they could come and they can you know, talk and engage on issues in a, in a solutions-based way, I like to say, um, it's us against the problem, not me versus you. And I think it's really important to engage from, with people from different backgrounds, different regions, different everything. We like to say at Zivi that um, curiosity takes courage because it is courageous to kind of learn from someone um, that you might not know or you might not agree with. I got to get away from uh, trying to uh, turn you into a French person by using the French spin on your last name. Elise Labbit. I'm going to make it very Americanized. Elise Labbit. Labbit like rabbit. <laughs> like uh, just a leading journalist. Uh, she's at CNN for two decades. She has a lot of experience. She wrote a great piece for uh, Political Magazine uh, that I thought really uh, provided a real balance and insight into the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And I hope other people um, go there to uh, look it up. And uh, your website that you created, uh, Zevi Media, what's that website address for people to go to? www.zivymedia.com. And I hope All you'll right. join us and follow us on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. All right, Elise Labbit, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you so much. All right. And uh, that was uh, Elise. Now, I just want to let the producers know, but our next guest that I'm bringing on, uh, Fahad Nazar, he's on a very tough schedule. So let's hold the ads, and if you don't mind, until we're uh, the uh, uh, commercials, until I'm done with Fahad. Uh, Fahad, it's Rayhan Ania. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Hi, Ray. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's a real pleasure. I, I so appreciate you. Uh, with me on the line is Fahad Nazer, the spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in the United States. Prior to his appointment, Nazer served as political consultant to the Saudi Embassy in Washington, D.C. He has a master's degree in political science from St. John's University in New York and a bachelor's degree in political science from New York University. Uh, President Biden announced plans to visit uh, Saudi Arabia um, probably I believe early next month. I don't have the exact date, but um, from your standpoint, Fahad, and the standpoint of Saudi Arabia, what does it signify and mean for the future of the relationships between the two countries? So Saudi-U.S. relations are longstanding. They have endured for 80 years and have continued to strengthen and deepen under both Republican and Democratic administrations. In many ways, this partnership is multidimensional. It has a political element that includes working closely to resolve some of the ongoing crises in the region, the war in Yemen being a prime example. It also has a military dimension that includes not only regular joint training exercises between our two forces, but also joint military operations. 
there is also an equally important economic dimension that entails dozens of American companies investing in the kingdom, opening factories and offices, and Saudi companies doing likewise, investing and doing business in the U.S. And there's also an often unfortunately overlooked people-to-people -people cultural component that entails tens of thousands of Saudis studying in the United States and tens of thousands of Americans working in and living in the kingdom for decades. Um, so we are looking to, so at the same time, we're, we're trying to broaden this cooperation to include some of the newer challenges and perhaps opportunities that the international community faces, like climate change, uh, space exploration, and cybersecurity. Um, so the fact that, you know, President Biden is visiting the kingdom on his first trip to the Middle East, I think is a testament to the strength and the durability of this relationship. You know, and also there's uh, prices for oil and gasoline have increased significantly in the U.S. Um, and I guess the question is, is Saudi Arabia, you know, many people think they are, but is Saudi Arabia to blame for high gas prices in the U.S.? On the co contrary, I think that Saudi Arabia has been the voice of reason and moderation among oil producers for decades, really. The kingdom has always put a high premium on stable and balanced international energy markets. And I think it has, throughout uh, all those years, has been mindful of the concerns of uh, producers, consumers, as well as investors. We believe in the importance of burden sharing among producers for the long-term stability of the market. And really, I think in many ways over the years, both oil producing nations as well as oil importing nations have looked to Saudi Arabia for leadership. I think that the kingdom has done that through our leadership of OPEC for decades, and more recently through our leadership of this broader grouping known as OPEC Plus. Saudi Arabia was instrumental in inking or in, uh, in the agreement that was concluded on April 12, 2020, between these OPEC uh, Plus members that brought much-needed stability to the markets. I believe that the agreement has proven effective, and it was designed in such a way to be flexible enough to respond to market demands. Um, so we maintain a very you know, robust dialogue with uh, our American counterparts here on uh, multiple levels of government. We include these, this dialogue includes a very broad array of uh, issues and discussions, and which it does include uh, energy stability as well. Yeah, and I would say that over the past several decades, even more, um, whenever there's been a problem in the United States, the Saudis have always stepped in to help. Um, they've been very supportive of a lot of the needs of the United States over the years. Right. So I, th I think we do take, we believe that we are in a somewhat unique position in the, uh, in the broader oil-producing community. And uh, as you said, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think we have a long legacy of stabilizing energy markets. If there's shortages, certainly we have uh, stepped in over the years, going back to the 1980s and 90s. Uh, more recently, we, I think, we played a very important leadership role with this OPEC Plus grouping to bring stability to markets. And again, I think we continue to lead that group. I think, you know, in certainly everything I'm hearing from oil experts, and it's also our position, is that international crude markets are fairly stable. But we continue to have uh, discussions with our partners in OPEC Plus, and also we continue to dis discuss uh, this and other issues with our American partners as well. And just a little bit on politics, is it true that 
Uh, does Saudi Arabia have a better relation with the Republican leadership in the U.S. than they did with, than they do with the Democratic leadership? So as I mentioned at the outset, I think the relationship has made steady progress over the past 80 years under both Democratic and Republican administrations. So not only is President Biden visiting the kingdom on his first trip to the region, but I think it's also worth remembering that President Obama visited Saudi Arabia four times uh, during his two terms, which I believe is the most visits by an American president. And at the same time, Saudi and U.S. forces fought a war side by side to expel the terrorist group ISIS from Iraq and Syria beginning in, that, in 2014. This was also during the Obama administration. Uh, at the same time, Her Royal Highness uh, Princess Rima bin Badr, our ambassador to the United States, maintained a, a robust dialogue with congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle. So I, I just don't think that this notion is very accurate, to be honest. Do they need to improve relations and what can be done to strengthen or improve relations with the Democrats? Well, this dialogue, I think, goes a long way, but I think there's an appreciation in Washington, as far as I can tell, uh, among congressional leaders and certainly in the administration, that Saudi Arabia plays a very important role globally. We play an important role globally in stabilizing international energy markets. We play an important role in helping bring stability and help resolve some of the political crises in the region, including the Yemen war, and we are playing a leading role, and we have played a leading role over the years in pushing back against militant non-state actors like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Houthis, and Hezbollah, and others. So I think there's an appreciation for, uh, for that very constructive role that the kingdom plays, and um, you know this is something that we discuss with our partners here in the U.S., as well as uh, our neighbors and partners around the world. And I understand that uh, the president is coming based on an invitation from King Salman. Um, he's going to meet with the king and uh, who else? What, what Do we know uh, what his plans are yet? Yeah, so uh, the president will meet with the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Salman, on the first day. But he will also have a separate meeting with His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, either the same day or the next day. Uh, and that meeting... You know, our, the two leaders will discuss bilateral cooperation and uh, joint efforts to address regional and global challenges, including, as I said, some of the uh, you know newer challenges that uh, the international community faces, including cybersecurity, climate change, and environmental initiatives. At the same time, the kingdom is hosting a summit that will uh, include the leaders of the GCC countries, as well as the leaders of Jordan, Egypt and uh, Iraq, and obviously President Biden will be attending that as well. Do you know what the focus of the summit is going to be? It will discuss regional challenges uh, more broadly. I think the region and the international community overall uh, does face many challenges. You know, in, there's global inflation. There's obviously the crisis in Ukraine. There is, um, you know, the conversation around stabilizing energy markets is ongoing. But these are some of our closest partners and allies in the region. And, uh, you know, any any conversation that the kingdom has with its closest allies will always include the United States because the United States is our most important strategic ally in the world. And what is, what, and just final couple questions and Fahad Nazar, our guest for our listeners, um, the uh, uh, spokesperson for the embassy of Saudi Arabia in the U.S. Uh, he's been uh, kind enough to join us uh, by telephone to talk about these issues. A few final uh, questions. During the meetings, 
What do you think Saudi Arabia wants from the Biden administration? What what does Saudi what is Saudi Arabia looking forward to? So Saudi Arabia wants to empower its youth, it wants to empower its women, it wants to support entrepreneurs so that we have a diversified, thriving economy. Over the years, American companies have been in the kingdom for a long time, and they have contributed positively to our development uh, in the past. And we believe that they will continue to play an important role in advancing this current and exciting stage in our development. The kingdom also wants to promote peace and stability, uh, not just for us, obviously, but for our, for our neighbors in the region, resolving crises and uh, wars like uh, the one we have in Yemen. We work very closely with the United States on that front as well. So any measures that brings and promotes stability um, and prosperity in the region is something that we obviously that, that we think are steps in the right direction. And as I said, as I said earlier, the international community also faces newer challenges like climate change, cybersecurity, and American companies are have always been at the forefront of some of these cutting-edge technologies that we believe will help mitigate some of these challenges. So again, any steps, any agreements that we uh, reach with our American partners, uh, private sector or public, are steps in the right direction. And um, you know, as I said at the outset, this is a relationship that has been mutually beneficial for us uh, for decades. And uh, you know, it's worth noting that our policies align on about 90% of the challenges that we face. And as any sports fan will tell you, if you complete 90% of your free throws in, in, in basketball, for instance, or 90% of your passes in football, you're in a, you're in a pretty good place. Well, I know in American baseball, if you hit 300, uh, 30%, <laughs> you are doing great. So uh, uh, Fahad, any final thoughts at all that uh, anything you'd like to mention that I haven't asked about uh, maybe what would constitute a successful visit or anything else? Uh, that you'd like to add before we thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, uh, you know, for your listeners, uh, if you have a chance, I really, I think that if you have an opportunity, please do visit Saudi Arabia. We have made obtaining a tourist visas for Americans and, and others very easy. I think that the kingdom is undergoing a very exciting transformation. As I said, uh, Americans have been the, there from the beginning. They have helped develop the kingdom. We are looking to attract not just foreign businesses or American businesses and American investors, but really any American who's interested in learning more about the kingdom, uh, please visit us uh, any chance you get. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Fahad, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I uh, have known you a long time, and uh, I hope I get a chance to, uh, now that COVID is pretty much, I hope, run its course, I get a chance to come back to uh, D.C. and uh, see you again and maybe even meet the new ambassador. Thank you so much, Fahd, uh, for joining us today on uh, live radio in Detroit, Washington, D.C., and it'll be rebroadcast in Chicago. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Ray. You're welcome. Fahd Nazer, spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in the U.S., uh, with us talking about uh, President uh, Joe Biden's anticipated planned trip to Saudi Arabia, first trip to the region uh, sometime next month. I'm Ray Hanania. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and then uh, maybe we'll take some phone calls or we'll talk about some of the other issues that face us. Um, again, thank you, uh, Fahad, for joining us, and uh, we will take a break. We'll be right back right after these messages.
ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Kuwaita Araf is running for Congress in the new 10th District, which includes cities where the Arab Chaldean presence is strong. A Christian Arab from Palestine, Kuwaita is a civil rights attorney and a longtime champion of rights for all people, including Arabs and Chaldeans here in the United States and around the world. Visit HuwaitaForCongress.com to get more information on her candidacy and why she needs your support in the upcoming August primary. Give your vote a voice and help elect a representative of and an advocate for our communities. Vote for Huweda Araf on August 2nd or by absentee ballot. Imagine you're on a train track somewhere miles away. A train is headed your way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming slowly but surely. If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may be on the wrong track and diabetes could be heading your way. Bit by bit, the danger is getting closer and closer. So should you stay on the track you're on now or move to make a change and reduce your risk? If you have prediabetes or you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, you may qualify for the National Diabetes Prevention Program in your local community. This one-year program could be the ongoing support you need to put you on the right track. Not only did participants lose weight, they cut their risk of type 2 diabetes in half. Ready to get on board for a healthier future? Learn more about the National Diabetes Prevention Program and what else you can do to manage and prevent diabetes at michigan.gov diabetes. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Live performances. Concerts. Music festivals. And hot jazz. Moments like these are made possible by the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's work together to continue to be safe and protect each other. Keep those concerts going. Keep the togetherness going by keeping yourself protected and your COVID-19 vaccines up to date. To find your vaccine and learn more, visit michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. <laughs> 
Life's too short to be in pain. The Ray Hanania Show is brought to you by the U.S. Arab Radio Network and sponsored by Arab News Newspaper, the Middle East's leading English language publication with print and online editions in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, France, Japan, Pakistan, England, and the United States. Listen to live radio every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit, Washington, D.C., New York, and Ontario, Canada. Or watch the live broadcast on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. The Ray Hanania Show is rebroadcast in Chicago at 12 noon on Thursday. For more information on the radio stations, live Facebook broadcast, and podcasts, visit ArabNews.com. And now, here's your host, columnist and U.S. special correspondent for Arab News, Ray Hanania. And we just uh, had a great discussion with two uh, uh, people about uh, Biden's uh, planned visit to Saudi Arabia uh, next month. And uh, the first was Elise Labatt. Um, she's a journalist and uh, a columnist, a political magazine. She wrote a great piece. And, and I thought in a very fair way, looking at the issues uh, that uh, Biden and Saudi Arabia will be addressing. And then we also had uh, insight from uh, Fahad Nazar, who is a spokesperson for the embassy of Saudi Arabia in the US. Fahad is a very qualified person to talk about uh, not only uh, politics, he has a master's degree in political science and uh, uh, bachelor's in political science. I love talking to the guy. I've known him many, many years. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, what uh, uh, comes out of that visit. I think it's Biden's first uh, trip to uh, the region. So it's going to be interesting. Um, this is election season here in the U.S. We only got a few minutes left. Uh, and uh, um, I know that uh, people are focused on elections here in the United States. We just had elections uh, yesterday in, uh, I think it was uh, Virginia was one state. Um, actually, in June, uh, earlier this month, we had a couple elections, uh, including uh, in North Dakota, uh, New Jersey, New Mexico. A lot of Arab Americans are running on the ballot. Hawaii Arif is running in the 10th district in Michigan. And I think that's a, an important race because she actually has a shot at winning that 10th district. It's, it's a, uh, the district is new. It's split almost equally between... Republicans and Democrats. Hueda is also a Christian Arab. And, you know, while I don't see any difference, you know, between Christians and Muslims as an Arab, um, I'm Christian, but I feel I'm Muslim by culture. We're very close. But as a candidate for office, uh, being Christian, I think she can appeal to the majority of Americans who are Christians who are going to be voting in that district. Um, there's some Arabs there and some Muslims. But I think the majority of the population is, uh, you know, non-Arab and non-Muslim. And I think that gives Hawaii an opportunity. Obviously, she's going to be targeted by the pro-Israel lobby, um, which doesn't like anybody elected to office who has criticized Israel. Uh, Israel's government, and I'm not saying Israel, but, you know, you criticize Israel's government, it's going to be an issue. And you can go to ArabNews.com and read my columns on that topic. You know, we criticize the United States all the time uh, in here and uh, the government of the United States. I can do that. But for some reason, if I criticize Israel, they get really upset. If I criticize Israel's government and their policies, you can be called anti-Semitic. But I think Hawaii is going to overcome all that 
you know, really uh, defamatory, you know, attacks against her that have been taking place. And I think she's going to do very well. And there are a number of candidates, and she is the strongest candidate running in the Democratic primary. Uh, and that's August 2nd. Uh, that'll be coming up in about maybe six weeks. We also have uh, elections uh, August 2nd in Kansas um, and in a couple other states, August 4th in Tennessee. So we're going to be monitoring a lot of these races to see how Arabs and Muslims do uh, in some of these elections. Um, there's some elections uh, next week, June 28th in Illinois. And one, one district here, one congressional district in Illinois, is it used to be the third congressional district that had the largest concentration of Palestinian Arabs and Muslims of all congressional districts in the United States. That's according to the New York Times. And we interviewed uh, Congresswoman Marie Newman, who represents the third district currently. And she pointed out that probably nine and a half percent of the third congressional district is Arab or Muslim. That's, you know, you're talking about 10%. It doesn't seem like a lot. Now, they've, they're trying to push her out, um, you know, because she's been very pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian, critical of Israel, but she's a big supporter of Israel, too. But, you know, like I said, Israel's government, um, they don't care whether you're fair to both sides. They want you to be fair to them only <laughs> sometimes. Um, so they're trying to knock her out of the box, and the Democrats... Uh, redistricted that district, the third district, and they put her in a new sixth district with incumbent Democrat Sean Caston, a congressman. And he's a great person too. We interviewed him a number of weeks. You can go to our podcast at arabnews.com slash radio show to listen to those interviews with Sean Caston and Marie Newman. And uh, uh, what Marie told me, which I thought was fascinating, is that this new sixth district in Illinois has almost 19% of the population is Arab and Muslim. 19%, that's almost one-fifth of the population, which could mean one-fifth of the voting population. And Arabs are strong voters. We voted a very high rate, almost 80 to 90%, um, like a lot of African Americans. Uh, we're among the highest voters in our districts where we are. So the Arab community can have a strong voice in this sixth district. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that race turns out. You can always uh, keep up with these topics at Arab News. Uh, a number of our writers here in the US for our US Bureau, um, we address all these issues. So we're looking forward to that election August 2nd in Michigan to see how Hoeda uh, Arif does. But especially, and listen, you know, when we talk about Christians, we're not just, we're, there are a lot of Middle East Christians who are not Arabs, and those are the Chaldeans, a lot of Chaldeans in Detroit. Uh, there's a big Chaldean population in Michigan in the 10th district, um, which is north of uh, Detroit. Um, I think it would be great if the Chaldeans uh, supported an Arab Christian candidate um, to give them a voice, you know, a strong voice for peace and justice you know, in the Middle East, that would change a lot of things, I think. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that a lot of the Chaldeans, because they know that I get a lot of emails from Chaldeans who listen to the radio show in Detroit, um, some here in Chicago, the Assyrian uh, Christian Middle East community also listens, and I hear from them all the time. 
but in Michigan, if the Chaldeans were to come together, I think to help Hawaii, I think it would make a big difference. And uh, she would owe the Chaldean community. And I think the Chaldean community would be the closest to actually having a voice uh, in Congress fighting for their rights too, in addition to peace in the Middle East. Um, we only have a couple minutes left and uh, I just wanna tell you how much uh, we enjoy and are grateful to the US Arab Radio Net for, Network. Um, the US Arab Radio Network is one of the only ones here in the US where Arab Americans can actually engage in a discussion about these issues. You know, a lot of the information we get is filtered through a media that is non-Arab. So their priorities don't align with us a lot of times. That's why it's so important that, you know, we need to support the English language Arab media like Arab News, uh, the US Arab Radio Network. We need to get that voice out here in the United States because it can make a difference. Arab Americans are four and a half, I think five million uh, Arab voters, uh, Arab uh, population, Arab Americans in the U US, something like seven and a half to eight million Muslims. Um, but the majority of Arabs actually are Christian Arabs, almost probably 65 to 70%. But Arabs need a voice. Arab Americans can give Arabs that voice, the Christian and Muslim Arab Americans working together because we're Arab. I love the word Arab. Um, I love being identified as an Arab. I'm very proud to be Arab. And I know there are, and I was born in this country. That doesn't mean I'm not American, very patriotic. Um, my entire family has served in the US military, you know, defending this country. So being Arab is not being anti-American. Being Arab is about being American. So I'm very proud of that. I would really love to see the Arabs in America come together and strengthen their voice, not because we want any special treatment, but because we wanna be treated fairly. We wanna be treated equally. And that means sometimes, you know, we can disagree about things and still work together. Uh, Fahad made a great point that, you know, 90% of the policies of the US and Saudi Arabia, they're, they're in line. They, uh, they're in, you know, they're very, close and similar to each other, there may be 10% that where there's differences. And in American baseball, as I noted to him, you hit 300, 30%, and you are a baseball star. Nobody hits 500, that's really hard to do, but if you're hitting 300, 30%, that's phenomenal. I wish the Arab community could come together as one voice, bring their issues in a positive way to the public, help Americans better understand who we are, better understand the Saudis, better understand the Gulf, better understand Jordan, Syria, um, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, so many of these uh, Middle East countries. Um, but of course, I think being Arab is the foundation. And that's why I'm so proud to do this radio show every Wednesday. I'm very grateful to the US Arab Radio Network and I'm very grateful to Arab News uh, for sponsoring this program and making it possible to reach everybody. Remember, you can always get information on this radio show by visiting arabnews.com. We have a uh, podcast page at arabnews.com slash radio show, or you can just look up the Ray Hanania show on iTunes, uh, on Spotify, uh, on all of them, Anchor FM, on the Google podcast. Um, we're on every podcasting platform. And I'd love to hear your views. 
you can always email me. You can visit my website at hanania.com uh, or rayhanania.com, either one, and send me an email. I'd love to hear what you have to think about all this because we have to give ourselves a voice. So right now I want to say thank you to WNZK and uh, also to WDMV in Washington, D.C., 700 a.m., uh, 690 a.m. in Detroit. And remember, this is rebroadcast Thursday morning at 7 a.m. in Detroit, WNZK AM 690. And it will be rebroadcast in Chicago on WMBI um, 1080 a.m. radio. That's 1080 a.m. radio at 12 noon Thursday. So I hope you'll listen. I will talk to you again next week when we address more issues of interest to the Arab American community. I'm Ray Hanania. Have